Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mosiah, chapter 29. Well, here we have come to the end of the book of Mosiah, of course. This is the final chapter. It's also certainly the end of an era and the beginning of a new. Specifically, in Mosiah 29, we turn the page and say goodbye to Alma and Mosiah, these characters that we've come to love and admire so much. This will happen at the end of of chapter 29. And we will leave the era of Nephite kings behind. And that era began with Nephi himself when he established his Nephite kingdom in 2 Nephi chapter 5. Then, of course, we saw how that was continued in a new place under the leadership of Mosiah 1. And then that kind of brings us to the present. Well, we saw that this new era was taking shape in the previous chapter, really, when Mosiah passed the kingly relics onto Alma instead of onto his own sons. This was our first indication that things were going to be different as Mosiah came to the end of this of his reign. So we'll return to that issue in just a moment. First, however, it is interesting to notice how there is symmetry in all of this as we step back and look at the form of the book of Mosiah. At the very beginning of the book, Benjamin was at the end of his reign. And in Mosiah chapter 1, King Benjamin transferred the records and the relics. We can kind of say it that way and remember that the records would have included the small plates of Nephi, the large plates of Nephi, and the brass plates. And the relics, we know that that would have included the sword of Laban and the Leahona, and as we've come to learn in the previous chapters, the interpreters as well. So King Mosiah transferred these records and these relics to his 29-year-old son, Mosiah, because it says that he began to reign in his 30th year. Then in the next chapter, he made his transfer of authority official before the people. And this, of course, was the beginning of King Benjamin's address, which he also wrote and disseminated in that form. Now, here we are at the end of the book of Mosiah, and we see the same pattern. Now it is Mosiah, uh, the son of Benjamin, that is at the end of his rule. And again, his death will be recorded at the end of this chapter. And it'll say that in the 30 and third year of his reign, being 60 and three years old, uh, Mosiah died. Uh, So here he is at the end of his reign, and he transferred the records and the relics, really all of the same things, presumably, that Benjamin transferred to him. But with the addition of more records, he would have had the record of Zenith, as Mormon called it, and of course the 24 Jaredite plates. And uh, there may have been other things as well. So his intention was to transfer those records to his heir. And uh, then he will make that official in the following chapter 
which is this chapter, Mosiah chapter 29, and he will do so in a written message just in the same way. So it's in this way that the book of Mosiah begins just as it ends, or we could say it ends just as it began. But of course, as we know, there is a twist. Mosiah's heir apparent, along with all of his brothers, so that was Aaron, who was the heir apparent, rejected the throne. And as we'll read in this chapter, neither would Aaron take upon him the kingdom, neither were any of the sons of Mosiah willing to take upon them the kingdom. So this is why we found that the transfer of records in the previous chapter, Mosiah chapter 28, was between King Mosiah and the son of Alma. I mentioned in the previous chapter as we encountered that, uh, that this is an interesting chiastic turn of events as we transition from one Nephite generation to the next, because the ruler's sons, in other words, the sons of Mosiah, well, they become the ministers, uh, as we read at the end of the previous chapter. Whereas the minister's son, who is Alma the Younger, he becomes the ruler. Well, it's not surprising then, as we come to Mosiah chapter 29, that the rule of the Nephite kingdom is transferred to Alma the Younger. We are already set up for that in Mosiah chapter 28. What is surprising, however, is that the entire system of governance is changed. And here is where we truly come to the end of an era, then. Alma the Younger will not be the next Nephite king. Instead, he will be the first Nephite chief judge. What will follow then, as we look at Mosiah chapter 29, after some opening narration from Mormon, is Mosiah's own words on the matter. We'll come back to that and look at the structure of the chapter, of course. But we'll read an excerpt from Mosiah's written message to the people. We'll get that word from word in his own language. And then towards the end of Mosiah's address or his written message, Mormon will simply summarize that. And then he will narrate the book to a close. And that's when we come, of course, to the, the passing of Alma and Mosiah. So because of this, Mosiah 29 is really unique in form and, of course, in content. So we've already looked at how the form is different. Uh, the word proclamation is not used in this chapter uh, as it was previously when Mosiah issued a proclamation that augmented the laws of the land. Uh, he did that, as we can remember, at the beginning of Mosiah chapter 28 as a measure of protection for church members that were being persecuted. And there is no indication here, uh, the word proclamation is not used, and, and there's, there's really no indication that Mosiah spoke to a gathering of assembled people, as Benjamin did at the temple. So we cannot know for sure whether Mosiah did the same on this occasion, but we can see again that Mosiah disseminated a written message to all the kingdom. As Mormon will tell us in verse 4, Therefore King Mosiah sent among the people, yea, even a written word sent he among the people. So the medium here is an interesting question, as it was with King Benjamin's written word. Uh, we know, of course, that metal plates were the chosen medium for the record of the kings and of the prophets. And uh, we might imagine in this case, though, that something more perishable was used, uh, ink and paper or maybe ink on scroll of some sort, but we're not told. So we've discussed the, the form of this chapter already, and we'll come back and do that more thoroughly, and how Mosiah's words are couched inside of Mormon's narrations in this chapter. Uh, but there's a lot that's unique about Mosiah chapter 29 in terms of content as well. 
For one thing, we can see that this really is an extension of Alma's words when he told the people of Helam that he did not want to be their king. And he has a rationale that he lays out at that point that will sound very similar to what Mosiah is going to teach us here in Mosiah chapter 29. It's also unique in terms of content because we have a king who is not passing the kingdom on to his son and who also is not passing this system of governance on to the next generation of Nephites. This is almost opposite to the direction of entropy, really. Uh, it's, it's, un, it's uncommon, very uncommon, for someone to divest their authority as a king to the people. It's only happened, as far as we know, at a few other points in history, and it takes someone of tremendous character to, to do that. Uh, so this is very unique. Um, we know that the prophet Samuel had told the Israelites not to go in this direction. He did not want them to have a king and told them that the Lord didn't want them to have a king. But of course, uh, they wanted that. So we, we saw the ancient Israelites going in the opposite direction. They went from an era of judges uh, not that that was a perfect time, but they went from an era of judges into an era of kings. And here, we're going the other direction, uh, from an era of kings to um, the, an era of judges. So that's quite unique. Well, what led Mosiah to make this change? Uh, we'll explore this in more depth, of course, as we move through the text and read some associated commentary. What we know already, though, is that there are several things that would have had a profound effect upon Mosiah based upon what we've already seen in this book. We're about to learn, of course, that Mosiah's sons do not want to rule as king. And of course, that's a major reason for why uh, this uh, this kingdom is not continuing. But really, there are a lot of other reasons too. I think Alma could have been made the next king. When we consider why Mosiah would change the entire system like this, uh, it's kind of a separate issue. Uh, here are some things that we, we can just think about because really we've already read these things. Uh, these, these would have undoubtedly led to this change. First of all, consider Benjamin's influence on all of this. Uh, the way that he transferred the kingdom to Mosiah at the beginning of this book was quite unique because of the way that he involved the people in almost a democratic way. Uh, all of them were involved in covenant making. It wasn't just a covenant exchange between uh, the old king and the new king, but the the people themselves participated in this. And this, I think John Welch wrote on this, uh, that this may have been a prelude to a change in government, uh, when the, a change in the system of government when a new generation came along. So uh, we've read that, and, and that certainly would have influenced Mosiah. Uh, Mosiah also, of course, is very sensitive to the way things just went in this parallel kingdom in the land of Nephi. And he'll talk about that in this chapter, especially about King Noah and the wickedness of King Noah and all the death and destruction that resulted from King Noah's uh, wickedness um, because of his ultimate power. Uh, So Mosiah will talk about that. Another thing that we consider kind of contextually as we have read through the book of Mosiah and as we think about how this would have influenced Mosiah's thinking We've seen how there really is less homogeneity than ever before in the land of Zarahemla. Uh, There's quite a bit less than there was uh, when the book began. There are the Nephites, of course, and there are seven associated factions, something we've talked about before. 
Uh, there are the Mulekites, those descendants of Zarahemla, who was a descendant of Mulekite, of Mulek, of course, who was a descendant of, of King Zedekiah himself. And then they have their broken and their regrafted branches, as we might put it, the people of Zenith, who left to the land of Nephi, and then the people of Limhi, who returned, and then, then the separate uh, people of Alma, who are, of course, coming out of the same group. But, but they're all different, so there's, there's less homogeneity. And, and there's another issue here at play, uh, which has become very apparent in the previous chapter. There's less freedom of religion, or excuse me, there is freedom of religion, um, and there, there is less uh, homogeneity in this sense as well. Uh, there are other churches in the law in the land of Zarahemla. Uh, laws and governance are needed then that will preserve this freedom of religion, so that it will also accommodate for the true church. Uh, so that's something that must have influenced Mosiah. So maybe this really strongly motivated him to pursue a system of governance that accommodated for all this heterogeneity uh, in his kingdom. Uh, finally. Here's really something to consider. In the previous chapter, we just saw Mosiah finally translating these 24 golden plates that uh, Limhi told Ammon about, and Ammon said, I know who can translate this, and Mosiah finally does in Mosiah chapter 28. Well, we can imagine that Mosiah, when he translated these plates, would have seen the rise and the fall of many kings in this record, and this will bear out for us when we read uh, 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 Moroni's abridgment of this. But remember that what we read in the book of Ether is indeed an abridgment, uh, whereas Mosiah came to know the entire record as he translated it. And it may be that inside of those 24 golden plates, there were very specific teachings on this subject of uh, governance by king. Uh, so, that those are all things to consider. All of this must have led then to Mosiah's teachings that we'll read in this chapter uh, when he says, you cannot dethrone an iniquitous king save it be through much contention and the shedding of blood. And he says he has his friends in iniquity and he keepeth his guards about him and teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him and trampleth under his feet the commandments of God. So this is how the book of Mosiah will end then, and how Mosiah chapter 29 will end. Uh, the entire book, uh, really, of Mosiah shows different facets of the same theme. Uh, it is how best to govern under a variety of challenges that come from without and from within. Most recently, we saw Mosiah augment the laws of the land in Mosiah chapter 28, and then two chapters prior to that in Mosiah chapter 26, we saw Alma governing the church with the help of a revelation from the Lord. Then at the beginning of the book of Mosiah, we saw how King Benjamin ended contention from both outside his kingdom and inside. Of course, we have a Malachi's record in the book of Omni that helps us see that as well. And now at the end of the book here, uh, Mosiah will show his final act of governance. He still has to alter things in order to govern according to the challenges that he's facing. And in this case, he will change the laws of the land so dramatically that it's no longer even a kingdom. And from this point forward, under this system of a chief judge, there will only be one king for the people to look forward to, and that's the one that Benjamin referred to as the heavenly king in his sermon. And it will be our privilege then as readers to see the arrival of this heavenly king as the central event and Mormon's abridgment as we come to that later. 
Now, before moving into a flyover summary of this chapter, I also want to read commentary from Ogden and Skinner that kind of summarize this entire chapter and consider this change in, in forms of government. So they say this, There are various systems of government. The best is theocracy, which is government by divine guidance. Another is autocracy, also called monarchy or kingship, where one person rules with unlimited power. Verse 13 explains that if it were possible to have just men to be our kings, like Mosiah 1 or Benjamin or Mosiah 2, then it would be appropriate to have kings governing us. But because most monarchs are not just, verse 16 tells us that it is not wise to have kings ruling over us. Note the frequent references to 1 Samuel chapter 8 in the footnotes of Mosiah chapter 29. Uh, Ancient Israel had also been warned about the dangers of a king. What follows in the Bible are three tragic stories, those of Saul, David, and then Solomon. Another form of government preferable to kingship is democracy, or government by the people through a system of representation. At this point in Nephite history, it was thought wise to shift to the rule of judges, a form of democracy. Do your business by the voice of the people, Mosiah counseled. It is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right. Governments are only good when the people are good. As founding father John Adams observed, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Liberty demands responsibility. Democracy can function optimally only on a foundation of decency among the citizens. Mosiah, the great prophet king, made an additional urgent observation about the political and moral climate of every nation. If the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, then is the time he will visit you with great destruction. As we follow the pressing political, social, and moral issues of our day, We note with concern in these first years of the present millennium that the views and votes of the people are hovering around 50% for and 50% against any particular issue. On the most critical issues the nations of the world are facing, abortion, pornography, substance abuse, same-gender marriage, and so on. And I would just add as I'm reading this that these, these are moral issues, and we could see, for example, uh, in in uh, King Noah's rule, when we read that, that it was first moral breakdown. It was problems that were showing up in Nephite society that were not universally acknowledged as problems. It was only until the Lamanites came and began to attack and to capture and to kill that that's what was universally acknowledged as a problem. So that's similar to what's happening here. The Nogden and Skinner continue, the proportion of the populace standing for righteous principles is often just barely over the 50% mark. The best armor the Latter-day Saints can use to counter the downward spiral of society is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most important work being done on earth is the dissemination of the greatest power for lifting the souls of men, the eternal plan of salvation through the atonement of Jesus Christ. The calendaring system of the Nephites had previously functioned according to the date of Lehi's departure from Jerusalem. Now they began calculating from the beginning of the reign of the judges. So, of course, we'll read about that later. Later, the Nephite civilization would change one more time to the same system used by much of the modern world, calculating from the date of Christ's birth. Now moving specifically to this chapter and looking at kind of how it's organized. First of all, we find Mormon's narration, and this is in verses 1 through 3. Uh, This is where the people express their preference for Mosiah's successor. They want it to be Aaron, but we find that he's unwilling, 
and all of the sons of Mosiah are unwilling to take upon themselves the kingdom. And not only are they unwilling at this point, but we know that they are unavailable. Uh, They have left for the land of Nephi. Now in verse 4, and extending all the way through verse 32, we get to read Mosiah's words directly. And this is an excerpt that Mormon has given us from that written message that went to the people. So we get to read the exact same thing that those people read. Now, we don't read all of it, because as we come to verse 33, uh, we discover that 33 through 36, those verses, are a summary of the remainder of Mosiah's written message. So uh, Mormon only provides us with his kind of overview of the way that that message uh, ended. So we can see Mormon's inspired inclusion of uh, Mosiah's excerpt, uh, but Mormon is still deciding what it is that we will read from that and what we will not. And so that summary ends in verse 36. Then we get the people's response to this message, and that's in verse 37, and that extends through verse 41. We find that they do indeed relinquish their desire for a king. So they respond positively to Mosiah's message. This is no small thing. It's no small thing for a king to divest his authority to the people in this manner. It just usually doesn't happen in history, and it's no small thing for the people to embrace this new system. I think it's an act of faith. So they vote for judges, and then among those judges there is one that is the chief judge, and we discover that in verse 42. And in verse verse 42 through 44, we find that Alma the Younger, the son of the great Alma, is appointed as chief judge. Then with the final three verses of this chapter, Mormon provides us with the end, with information that, that tells us that Alma the Elder, that his life has ended, and he died at 82 years old as he says in verse 45, and then tells us that King Mosiah dies in verse 36. And so then uh, Mosiah, or excuse me, Mormon uses his editorial language in the very final verse saying, and thus. Of course, at other times he will interject with, and thus we see. But here he says, and thus ended the reign of the kings over the people of Nephi. So uh, Mormon is telling us we've come to the end of an era Uh, This reign of kings that began with Nephi's reign in the land of Nephi, back in 2 Nephi chapter 5, this era has now come to an end and also has the days of Alma, who is the founder of their church and, of course, of King Mosiah. So moving back to verse 1, Now when Mosiah had done this, he sent out throughout all the land among all the people, desiring to know their will who should be their king. So when it says that Mosiah had done this, we can remember what it is that he had done at the end of Mosiah chapter 28. He had transferred records to Alma the Younger and uh, included among those were those that he translated um, the the Jaredite records. So after he had done that, uh, he sent throughout all the land among all the people desiring to know their will concerning who should be their king. So that's already a a democratic gesture. Now, verse 2, And it came to pass that the voice of the people came, saying, We are desirous that Aaron, thy son, should be our king and our ruler. Back to this gesture of appealing to the people. Uh, Here's something from Daniel Ludlow 
The order of the birth of the four sons of Mosiah is never made clear in the Book of Mormon. The listing in Mosiah chapter 27, verse 34, where it says Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, would indicate that Ammon was the firstborn, followed by Aaron, then Omner, and Himni. Also, the fact that Ammon was the leader on their missionary journey to the Lamanites would seem to indicate that Ammon was the eldest. However, when King Mosiah asked his people to select his successor, they first desired that Aaron should be their king and their ruler. In this single instance, it appears as though Aaron may have been the eldest son. Verse 3, Now Aaron had gone up to the land of Nephi, therefore the king could not confer the kingdom upon him. Neither would Aaron take upon him the kingdom, neither were any of the sons of Mosiah willing to take upon them the kingdom. Uh, So two reasons are given here. First of all, they're unable, they're unavailable, and second of all, they're unwilling. This is from uh, President Dallin H. Oaks' great conference talk called Good, Better, and Best. He said, we should begin by recognizing the reality that just because something is good is not a sufficient reason for doing it. The number of good things we can do far exceeds the time available to accomplish them. Some things are better than good, and these are the things that should command priority attention in our lives. We have to forego some good things in order to choose others that are better or best because they develop faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen families. That has an interesting application here as we think about Aaron and his brothers and their decision to do the very best, which was to leave the kingdom. Uh, That would have been a tremendous gesture on their parts uh, to not accept uh, the power and authority that would come from being a king. Mosiah will reference that a little bit later. Uh, Now we come to verse 4, and an excerpt of Mosiah's written word uh, is what we get to read here. So therefore King Mosiah sent again among the people, yea, even a written word sent he among the people. And these were the words that were written, saying, Behold, O ye my people, or my brethren, for I esteem you as such, I desire that ye should consider the cause which ye are called to consider, for ye are desirous to have a king. Now I declare unto you that he to whom the kingdom doth rightly belong has declined, and will not take upon him the kingdom. Now, there are other points in the book of Mosiah where, where we find that Mosiah is wearied by the teasings of the people. They want him to send Ammon to the land of Nephi to see what had come of the people of Zenith, for example. Um, they also were really desirous that he would translate the Jaredite plates. Uh, there are a couple other examples of that as well. We, we don't get that here. We don't know what their level of desire was for another king, but Mosiah does say in verse 5, that the people were desirous to have a king. Uh, That is also the case, of course, under Samuel's leadership in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The children of Israel, the people of Israel, were desirous to have a king. But when Samuel spoke to them, they were not as responsive as the people are to Mosiah in this case. So this is both to Mosiah's credit and to the people's credit as we read through this. Verse 6, Now I declare unto you that he to whom the kingdom doth rightly belong has declined and will not take upon him the kingdom. And now if there should be another appointed in his stead, behold, I fear there would rise contentions among you. Uh, So this suggests that Aaron was very much their first choice and that choosing him was probably in keeping with the order of things, what we would call the law of primogenitor, perhaps. And who knoweth but what my son to whom the kingdom doth belong should turn to be angry and draw away a part of this people after him, which would cause wars and contentions among you, 
which would be the cause of shedding much blood and perverting the way of the Lord, yea, and destroy the souls of many people. Now I say unto you, let us be wise and consider these things, for we have no right to destroy my son. So that's an interesting angle that Mosiah is bringing to them. Neither should we have any right to destroy another if he should be appointed in his stead. And if my son should turn again to his pride and vain things, now remember, he most certainly was caught up in his pride and vain things, and we discovered that a few chapters back in the book of Mosiah. So Aaron is a reformed man, and so Mosiah is is saying, "I, I don't want you to ruin my son. I don't want kingship to ruin my son. And on top of that, imagine if he returned to his pride and his vain things. And Mosiah continues, he, in this state, would recall the things which he had said and claim his right to the kingdom, which would cause him and his people to commit much sin. And now, let us be wise and look forward to these things and do that which will make for the peace of this people. Therefore, I will be your king the remainder of my days. Nevertheless, let us appoint judges to judge this people according to our law and we will newly arrange the affairs of this people. So that's, that's his way of saying, we're going to restructure this. For we will appoint wise men to be judges that will judge this people according to the commandments of God. Now we're already used, and the people would have been used to a governing system that had not only a king, but a cadre of priests that surrounded him. We saw that with Noah, and we noticed uh, very recently that Mosiah consulted with his priests in a matter of governance before he altered or augmented the laws of the land to accommodate for more religious freedom in the previous chapter. So they're already used to this concept of, of multiple characters that stand at the head of the government. But in this case, Mosiah is going to change that so that it's a system of judges. John Welch wrote this, uh, and this is called Law of Mosiah. Important changes occurred in Nephite law and society with the establishment and promulgation of the Law of Mosiah in 92 B.C. Details about this significant legal reform embedded in the narrative of the Book of Mormon shows that the Law of Mosiah... Uh, as it was called in Alma, or will be called in Alma chapter 11, verse 1, was solidly rooted in ancient Near Eastern ideas and legal tradition. Research into the laws and jurisprudence of the ancient Near East sheds light on the legal provisions and procedures reflected in the Book of Mormon. Whoever wrote the Book of Mormon was intimately familiar with the workings of ancient Israelite law and with the Nephite legal system that derived from it. King Mosiah established specific laws. In so doing, he was acting like other ancient lawgivers, such as the famous Babylonian lawgiver Hammurabi or the great Israelite leader Moses. In antiquity, such leaders personally acted to issue laws for the express purpose of establishing justice and equity among their people. Likewise, one of Mosiah's main motives was that all would be equal and their judges were praised for filling their judgeships with justice and equity. We read that in Helaman chapter 3. Although the law of Mosiah allowed the people to select judges, it does not appear that these judges had the power to create law itself. The law that they applied was given them by Mosiah, and the laws under which they acted were remembered several generations later as the laws of Mosiah. That phrase is used again in Helaman chapter 4, for example. Like other ancient lawgivers, I think I'd just add here before continuing with what Welch is writing, that we can remember that Mosiah 
altered the land with one um, one act in the previous chapter uh, with his proclamation. And so uh, it, it seems that the chief judge will not have the same ability uh, without consulting with the people more broadly and, and running through a different process. Then Welch continues, Like other ancient lawgivers who often drew on divine sources in legitimizing their laws, Mosiah gave the laws which the Lord commanded him to give up unto the people. Uh, that's in Helaman chapter 4, verse 22. For example, Moses issued the laws that Jehovah revealed to him, and Hammurabi claimed on his steel that the god Marduk had called him to make justice to appear in the land and commanded him to set forth truth and justice by establishing his laws. The law of Mosiah primarily made procedural changes and probably did not make radical changes in the substantive rules of the law of Moses. Mosiah instructed the new Nephite judges to judge according to the laws given you by our fathers. And 22 years later, the Nephites were still strict in observing the ordinances of God according to the law of Moses. We'll read that in Alma chapter 30, verse 3. In its procedural and administrative enactments, the law of Mosiah can well be compared with the Israelite legal reform of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 5-11. through 11. The law of Mosiah made changes in the judicial system. It abolished the kingship and instituted judges and officers. It also established an innovative procedure whereby a judge could be judged by a higher judge if he did not judge according to the law. It further established a procedure, and by the way, that we will read in verse 28 of this chapter. It further established a procedure for expelling unjust higher judges. If they did not judge righteously, that is, according to the law given by the fathers, a small number of the lower judges could be authorized by the people to judge the higher judges and remove them from office. And we'll read of that in verse 29 of this chapter. Now returning to the text, and Mosiah's words continue in verse 12. Now it is better that a man should be judged of God than of man. For the judgments of God are always just, but the judgments of man are not always just. Therefore, if it were possible that you could have a just man to be your king, who had established the laws of God and judged this people according to his commandments, Yea, if ye could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did for this people, I say unto you, if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that ye should always have kings to rule over you. And even I myself have labored with all the power and faculties which I have possessed to teach you the commandments of God and to establish peace throughout the land, that there should be no wars nor contentions, no stealing nor plundering nor murdering, nor any manner of iniquity." And whosoever has committed iniquity, him have I punished according to the crime which he has committed, according to the law which has been given to us by our fathers. Now I say unto you that because all men are not just, it is not expedient that ye should have a king or kings to rule over you. For behold, how much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be committed? Yea, and what great destruction. Again, as I mentioned in the introduction to this, He knew this from reading Noah's record and from learning firsthand from people that lived under Noah's rule. But he also would have known this from translating the Jaredite records. In verse 18, he continues, Yea, remember King Noah. So he's just told us about Benjamin. Now here's this contrast. His wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. Behold, what great destruction did come upon them. And also because of their iniquities, they were brought into bondage. This has been such an important comparison for us as well. We read what we did of King Benjamin's reign, and we kind of 
came into that narrative at the end of his reign. Uh, it, it could be that we w- would have read more about King Benjamin's reign uh, if we had the, the lost manuscript. Uh, but we came in with King Benjamin's reign, and then when we read King Noah's reign, um, as it was happening probably about the same time, what a contrast between these two characters. So it's, it's very helpful now to have Mosiah uh, wrapping all of this up for us as readers and comparing these two kings here. Here's something from Lee Donaldson. Uh, this is a chapter called Benjamin and Noah, where he compares these two rulers in Nyman and Tate's book called Mosiah. So he says here, The book of Mosiah's penetrating look into the characters of King Benjamin and King Noah illustrates a lesson on righteous and unrighteous uses of power and authority. A close look at the book of Mosiah makes it obvious why Mosiah too would have selected these two kings to make his point. Benjamin is the type of a righteous king. Noah, the model of a wicked one. King Benjamin's purpose was to bring his people to Christ while Noah led his people away from Christ. The great joy of Benjamin's people came from the teachings of the righteous king, whereas the sore afflictions of Noah's reign were the fruits of his evil leadership. Now, verse 19, And were it not for the interposition of their all-wise creator, and this because of their sincere repentance, they must unavoidably remain in bondage until now. Uh, straight from Mosiah here, as he is, remember, here he was in Zarahemla as we were reading through this record and, and uh, learning about Zenith and, and Noah and Limhi and wondering about this great king who we had just been introduced to in the land of Zarahemla, but who we had not yet heard from like we had from Benjamin. We just knew that while all this peril was taking place under Noah's kingdom, that there was going to be a Mosiah in the land of Zarahemla. But now we do get to hear from him directly, and what eloquent and beautiful language he uses to explain the deliverance that the people of Limhi finally found after the iniquity that they had devolved into uh, under the leadership of King Noah. And the way that he says it here in verse 19 again is that it was the interposition of their all-wise creator and uh, tells us that it was only because of their sincere repentance. So that tells us in just uh, a a very few eloquent and poetic words uh, what it is for us that allows us to be delivered. It's the interposition of our all-wise creator. Verse 20, But behold, he did deliver them, because they did humble themselves before him, and because they cried mightily unto him, he did deliver them out of bondage, and thus doth the word, the, thus doth the Lord work with His power in all cases among the children of men, ex- extending the arm of mercy towards them that put their trust in Him. There's this wonderful talk by Elder David A. Bednar. Uh, it's been several years now, but he highlighted this phrase that we find right at the very beginning of the small plates of Nephi. Uh, where, where Nephi talks about the tender mercies of the Lord and how it is that the people can be delivered. And so that's the first time that Nephi sets that theme up of deliverance at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon. And now this, of course, is the latest iteration of that theme. And this way that Mosiah has of discussing deliverance in this way, in these uh, two verses, verses 19 and 20, tie into what Elder Bednar taught in this general conference talk that's called Tender Mercies of the Lord. So he said, uh, the prophet Nephi wrote, the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen, 
because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. The Lord's tender mercies do not occur randomly or merely by coincidence. Faithfulness, obedience, and humility invite tender mercies into our lives. And it is often the Lord's timing that enables us to recognize and treasure these important blessings. We should not underestimate or overlook the power of the Lord's tender mercies. The simpleness, the sweetness, and the constancy of the tender mercies of the Lord will do much to fortify and protect us in the troubled times in which we do now and yet will live. When words cannot provide the solace we need or express the joy we feel, when it is simply futile to attempt to explain that which is unexplainable, when logic and reason cannot yield adequate understanding about the injustices and inequities of life, when mortal experience and evaluation are insufficient to produce a desired outcome, and when it seems that perhaps we are so totally alone, truly we are blessed by the tender mercies of the Lord and made mighty even to the power of deliverance. Beautiful words by Elder Bednar there. Verse 21, And behold, as Mosiah continues, Now I say unto you, ye cannot dethrone an iniquitous king, save it be through much contention and the shedding of much blood. So what if my son Aaron were to turn to his wicked ways and you needed to dethrone him? Imagine what would come from that. And think about what it took to dethrone effectively. That's not quite how it played out for Noah, but effectively an iniquitous king in that instance. Then he says, for behold, he has his friends in iniquity. And he keepeth his guards about him, and he teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him, and he trampleth under his feet the commandments of God. And he enacteth laws, and sendeth them forth among his people, yea, laws after the manner of his own wickedness. And whosoever doth not obey his laws, he causeth to be destroyed. And whosoever doth rebel against him, he will send his armies against them to war, and if he can, he will destroy them. And thus an unrighteous king doth pervert the ways of all righteousness. And now, behold, I say unto you, it is not expedient that such abominations should come upon you. Therefore, as Mosiah continues, choose you by the voice of this people, judges, that ye may be judged according to the laws which have been given you by our fathers, which are correct, and which were given them by the hand of the Lord. Now, it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right. But it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Therefore this shall ye observe, and make it your law, to do your business by the voice of the people. McConkie and Millet have written this about this shift that Mosiah is putting into action here. Uh, this was a system of government which might be called theodemocratic, in the sense that the voice of the people as well as the word and the will of the Lord would form the basis for decisions made and laws instituted. Theocratic governments trace their origin to the earliest ages. Adam, our father, the first man, Elder Bruce R. McConkie has written, is the presiding high priest over all the ages of the earth. The government of the Lord gave him, the government the Lord gave him was patriarchal, and from the expulsion from Edom to the cleansing of the earth by water in the day of Noah, the righteous portion of mankind were blessed and governed by a patriarchal theocracy. This theocratic system, patterned after the order and system that prevailed in heaven, was the government of God. He himself, though dwelling in heaven, was the lawgiver, judge, and king. He gave direction in all things both civil and ecclesiastical, 
There was no separation of church and state as we now know it. All governmental affairs were directed, controlled, and regulated from on high. The Lord's legal administrators on earth served by virtue of their callings and ordinances in the holy priesthood and as they were guided by the power of the Holy Ghost. Well, this gives us a chance, I think, to step back and just think about different forms of government, and Ogden and Skinner addressed that at the beginning of this chapter. Um, But this helps us think about how it is that we are all gods, we all belong to him, and that was something that King Benjamin taught, and that he has delegated his priesthood authority to church leaders today, so that that can be uh, made available to us. But when it comes to systems of government, there are different ways that that's handled uh, across different ages of of the earth and in different places on the earth. Now verse 27, and if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, then is the time he will visit you with great destruction, even as he has hitherto visited this land." Mosiah appeals to the voice of the people then at the very beginning of this chapter. And now he's coming back to that concept. The context then was simply to ask them who they would like to have as their king. But now he is is changing this and he is elevating this idea of the voice of the people um, to a place where it can be uh, a means for creating and enforcing laws. To this idea that the majority of people could choose that which is not right, uh, we have this from uh, the BYU Institute Manual. Elder Neil A. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles warned that we must not be indifferent to wickedness in society because destruction awaits nations that choose unrighteousness. Speaking behaviorally, when what was once the lesser voice of the people becomes more dominant, then the judgments of God and the consequences of foolish selfishness follow. Cultural decline is accelerated when single-interest segments of society become indifferent to general values once widely shared. This drift is facilitated by the indifferent or the indulgent as society is led careful down to hell. Some may not join in this drift, but instead they step aside, whereas once they might have constrained, as is their representative right, We actually have an obligation to notice genuine, telltale societal signs. For what happens in cultural decline, both leaders and followers are really accountable. Historically, of course, it is easy to criticize bad leaders, but we should not give followers a free pass. Otherwise, in their rationalization of their degeneration, they may say they were just following orders, while the leader was just ordering followers. However, Much more is required of followers in a democratic society where an individual character matters so much in both leaders and followers. President Boyd K. Packer also spoke of the recent trends of distorting tolerance. The virtue of tolerance has been distorted and elevated to a position of such prominence as to be thought equal to and even valued more than morality. It is one thing to be tolerant, even forgiving, of individual conduct, It is quite another to collectively legislate and legalize to protect immoral conduct that can weaken and even destroy the family. There is a dangerous trap when tolerance is exaggerated to protect the rights of those whose conduct endangers the family and injures the rights of the more part of the people. We are getting dangerously close to the condition described by the prophet Mosiah. And then then he reads these verses which we just have about uh, the, the majority of the people choosing that which is not right. And Mosiah continues in verse 28, 
And now if ye have judges, and they do not judge you according to the law which has been given, ye can cause that they may be judged of a higher judge. If your higher judges do not judge righteous judgments, ye shall cause that a small number of your lower judges should be gathered together, and they shall judge your higher judges according to the voice of the people. And I command you to do these things in the fear of the Lord, and I command you to do these things, and that ye have no king, that if these people commit sins and iniquities, they shall be answered upon their own heads. So again, more responsibility is being given to the people in this instance, and he's also reminding that when you have higher judges uh, and then you have uh, other judges that can, a small number of lower judges that can judge the higher judges, that all of that is still done not in pride or in, in a, a sense of hubris, but it's in, done in the fear of the Lord. Verse 31, For behold, I say unto you, The sins of many people have been caused by the iniquities of their kings. Therefore, their iniquities are answered upon the heads of their kings. And now I desire that this inequality should be no more in this land, especially among this my people. Uh, What a great act of character, I think, on Mosiah's part to notice, to have the self-awareness to notice this inequality. He's thought about this a great deal and is willing to make this change and to acknowledge that there has been such inequality. And he's doing this as the king. But I desire that this land should be a land of liberty, and every man may enjoy his rights and privileges alike, so long as the Lord sees fit that we may live and inherit the land, yea, even as long as any of our posterity remains upon the face of the land." Robert S. Wood has written this on, uh, this is out of an article called On the Responsible Self and is included in Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide. Once we have accepted responsibility for our own actions, the grace of God is extended to us. For freedom implies not only accountability, but also the ability to repent. And repentance, grounded upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, brings sanctification and holiness the ability to transcend consequences of our actions and to be restored as children of our Father in heaven. Today, many people manifest the desire for such a rescue in small and large ways. The student, who having failed to study during the term, prays for assistance in an examination. The teacher, who opens a lesson by saying that after having made no preparations, he or she intends to rely on the Spirit. The individual who, having abused his or her body through lack of exercise and violation of the Lord's law of health, expects to be delivered, sometimes through priesthood administration, from the ravages of self-induced ill health. The drunken or reckless driver who prays for a second chance, the individual who, having violated the commands of God or rules of society, expects mercy to utterly suppress the requirements of justice. The psychologist Eric Fromm, called the wish to escape the consequences of one's actions a desire to escape from freedom. For being free requires being responsible. The very word freedom connotes the ability to judge rationally between alternatives and the willingness to accept the consequences of one's decisions. The prophet Lehi, in his counsel to his son Jacob, stressed that life poses real alternatives with different consequences. Adherence to divine commandments will protect us from those consequences that are most damaging to our quest for sanctification and exaltation. If we abide strictly by the commands of our Heavenly Father, we may not necessarily be protected from adversity, but we will be protected from that which is most deadly, the weakening of our integrity, alienation from God, 
the surrender of our divine destiny as children of God, and the destruction of our soul. Consequently, when we disobey the commands of God and the counsels of the living prophets, we always pay a price. No rationalization, no excuse, no complaining will alter the consequences. As Alma observed, there is a law given and a punishment affixed. Moses preached the same doctrine. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. That's out of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Now that we've finished chapter, or excuse me, verse 32, that's the end of, of Mosiah's excerpt that we are given by Mormon. And now in verses 33 through 36, he'll summarize the remainder. He says, And many more things did King Mosiah write unto them, unfolding unto them all the trials and troubles of a righteous king. So again, we can tell here uh, when Mormon says this, that many more things did Mosiah write unto them. This was a a really well-developed and long-written message and probably had very many specifics about how this governance would occur, something like a, a, a constitution, really. Yea, Mormon continues, all the travails of soul for their people and also all the murmurings of the people to their king. Uh, And he explained it all unto them. And he told them that these things ought not to be, but that the burden should come upon all the people that every man might bear his part. And he also unfolded unto them all the disadvantages they labored under by having an unrighteous king to rule over them. Yea, all his iniquities and abominations, all the wars and contentions, and bloodshed, and the stealing and the plundering, and the committing of whoredoms, and all manner of iniquities which cannot be enumerated, telling them that these things ought not to be, that they were expressly repugnant to the commandments of God. Now we come to what transpired that this uh, once this written message has been received by the people. Here's their response. Verse 37, And now it came to pass... After King Mosiah had sent these things forth among the people, they were convinced of the truth of his words. As I mentioned earlier, I think that's no small thing. And this is a people that seem to be ready to take upon themselves the responsibility that Mosiah has discussed here. Verse 38, Therefore they relinquished their desires for a king and became exceedingly anxious that every man should have an equal chance throughout all the land. Yea, and every man expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins. McConkie and Millet, in their doctrinal commentary on the Book of Mormon, wrote, We believe that governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man, and that he holds man accountable for their acts in relation to them, both in making laws and administering them for the good and safety of society. Further, the responsibility for identifying and selecting good men and women to represent them and serve them in government rests with the people. Nevertheless, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. Wherefore, honest men and wise men should be sought for diligently, and good and wise men ye should observe to uphold. Otherwise, whatsoever is less than these cometh of evil. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 98, verses 8 through 10. Now this from the book that I previously uh, mentioned from uh, Tate and Nyman uh, called Mosiah. Uh, There's another section of this that's written by Byron R. Merrill. And he says this, People often express a desire for someone to protect and care for them, as if they were unable to care for themselves. Satan cleverly persuades them to relinquish responsibility for their lives, their innate right to exercise their agency within a free environment to someone else, in exchange for anticipated security. 
Those who are thus accustomed to submissive security are often hesitant to leap into the arena of civic freedom where they determine their future by their own choices. If they alone are responsible for their future, whom can they blame for life's frustrations? Mosiah wrote at length to carefully explain to the people what they should do, and then to convince them that they really could do it. His people understood and accepted this shift of responsibility, and therefore they relinquished their desire for a king, and became exceedingly anxious that every man should have an equal chance throughout all the land. Yea, and every man expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins. Clearly the spirit of freedom was brooding over the Nephites. Verse 30, as we're still reading about the response of the people to this, Therefore it came to pass that they assembled themselves together in bodies throughout the land to cast in their voices concerning who should be their judges to judge them, according to the law which had been given them, and they were exceedingly rejoiced because of the liberty which had been granted unto them. So uh, before talking about the content, uh, returning back uh, to some commentary about the content of these teachings, just consider this scene what it is that's happening here, this this humble uh, king who sees the need for a new system of government and who implements it so beautifully, and then this people who are willing to take upon them this responsibility that we've been discussing here. And the way that it's playing out is that they assemble in bodies and they begin to cast votes, really. Uh, votes is not used here. It says they cast in their voices, uh, which is a beautiful way, I think, of expressing the the idea of voting. They cast in their voices concerning who should be their judges. K. Edwards has written this section in Kent Jackson's book on the Book of Mormon and this volume that extends from 1 Nephi to Alma 29. Uh, She writes this in a section that is called Kingdom of God and the Kingdoms of Men. Mosiah 29 is not a treatise about the superiority of democracy over kingship, but a discussion of fundamental principles of government that should be protected in any form of government. Elder Bruce R. McConkie pointed out that religion must be free from any earthly power and subject only to the powers of heaven if it is to have saving power. Thus, governments that inhibit freedom of religion, freedom of worship, and the freedom to choose one's own course curtail and even prevent the choice making that leads to salvation. Uh, I should have read choice making that leads to salvation. However, the 12th article of faith enunciated by the prophet Joseph Smith states, we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Numerous illustrations in both the Old and New Testaments indicate that the Lord does not always require submission to evil secular power, However, New Testament guidelines give direction on how to function relative to secular authority. Long before the time of Jesus and Peter, divinely established theocracies had ceased to exist. Both Jesus and Peter were subject to secular powers that used religion for their own purposes or looked upon it as a necessary evil or viewed it as a pious nonsense. Jesus was fully aware of the domination of Rome and the political subservience of the Jews when he said, Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Peter's counsel to the saints in his day was, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. Such a course, Peter said, is the will of God, 
Hence the words of counsel, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. That comes out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Elder James E. Talmadge in 1899 gave this counsel to the saints for dealing with conflicts between religion and state. It is the duty of the saints to submit themselves to the laws of their country. Nevertheless, they should use every proper method as citizens or subjects of their several governments to secure for themselves and for all men the boon of freedom in religious service. It is not required of them to suffer without protest imposition by lawless persecutors or through the operation of unjust laws, but their protests should be offered in legal and proper order. The saints have practically demonstrated their acceptance of the doctrine that it is better to suffer evil than to do wrong by purely human opposition to unjust authority. If by thus submitting themselves to the laws of the land in the event of such laws being unjust and subversive of human freedom, the people be prevented from doing the work appointed them of God. They are not to be held accountable for the failure to act under the higher law. Now K. Edwards continues, It is not the form secular government may take that is at issue. Obviously, it has and can have many varieties of form, each effective in a given set of circumstances. The issue is the laws that are created and enforced by a particular form of government. For church members around the world, the issue is how their actions will be circumscribed and judged under the law. Can they live the principles of the gospel and be free to work out their salvation? King Mosiah stated these three requirements of laws, that they have been handed down by the fathers, that they are correct, and that they have been given by the hand of the Lord. These principles provide the people in any society a standard for evaluating the laws of their secular government. Verse 40, the people, now that they've assembled and cast in their voices, it says, and they did wax strong in love towards Mosiah. Yea, they did esteem him more than any other man. For they did not look upon him as a tyrant who was seeking for gain. Yea, for that lucre which doth corrupt the soul. Uh, imagine here, by the way, that there could have been those that had lived under King Noah's rule at this time, and, and what great respect they would have had for Mosiah. For he had not exacted riches of them, neither had he delighted in the shedding of blood, but he had established peace in the land, and he had granted unto his people that they should be delivered from all manner of bondage, therefore they did esteem him, yea, exceedingly beyond measure. Remember, this is Mormon's language, and so he's summarizing what it is that he has read as he's providing us with this abridgment, and there would have been a great deal that he would have read that would have helped him to put this picture together of how it is that the people felt about King Mosiah. And we can tell that Mormon personally has this feeling for Mosiah too, as he is abridging the record. Reynolds and Sojal say this about Mosiah, As a king, he was a father to them. But as a prophet, seer, and revelator, he was the source from whence divine wisdom flowed unto them. We must go back to the days of the antediluvian patriarchs to find the peers of these three kings, the two Mosiahs and Benjamin, when monarchs ruled by right divine, the, and men were prophets, priests, and kings by virtue of heaven's gift and God's will. That's a wonderful point by Reynolds and Sojal that the, there's no other comparable stretch of three kings that reign in such righteousness that we even know of, and we'd probably have to go even earlier than the flood to find them. Now Reynolds and Soljal continue, 
As a lawmaker, Mosiah may be regarded among the most eminent this world has produced. We regard him in some respects as the Moses, in others the Alfred the Great of his age and his nation. But besides him being a king, he was also a seer. The gift of interpreting strange tongues and languages was his. By this gift he translated from the twenty-four plates of gold found by the people of King Limhi the records of the Jaredites. No wonder that a man possessed of such gifts, so just and merciful in the administration of the law, so perfect in his private life, should be esteemed more than any man by his subjects, and that they waxed strong in their love towards him. Now this from Elder Nilly Maxwell. Uh, He said, Laboring with his own hands, Mosiah was a man of peace and freedom. He wanted the children of Christ to esteem their neighbors as themselves. King Mosiah was deeply anxious that all the people have an equal chance, Yet there would be no free rides because, said he, every man would bear his own part. Mosiah also faced the challenges of leading a multi-grouped society, Nephites, Zoramites, Mulekites, Nehorites, Limhites in Gideon, as well as those covenanters in Alma's group. How varied these interest groups were, and how yet united in their love of their leader. Then, verse 41, And it came to pass that they did appoint judges to rule over them or to judge them according to the law, and this they did throughout the land. So we're still talking about the way the people gathered, how they cast in their voices and voted for judges. Now we discover in verse 42 how Alma fits into all of this because we knew in the previous chapter that he was given the records and the relics. So he was was being set up in our minds as readers as the heir apparent And then we have this twist as we read Mosiah chapter 29, where we discover that there will be no heir. Well, there's still a place for Alma that is definitely unique and will be uh, very similar to that of a king. He he will be the sovereign, or I should say the, 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 uh, the senior ruler in this case. And of course, he'll be the chief judge instead of the king. So the people... Uh, they cast their vote for the person playing this role as well. And we read this in verse 42, And it came to pass that Alma was appointed to be the first chief judge, he being also the high priest, his father having conferred the office upon him and having given him the charge concerning all the affairs of the church. What I said in the introduction and in uh, Mosiah chapter 28 uh, isn't entirely true. How I talked about the ruler... Mosiah's sons becoming the ministers, and the minister, Alma, his son, becoming the ruler. Because we can see here that Alma the Younger actually becomes both. He has become the high priest, assuming the same role that his father, Alma, uh, took upon himself, uh, as we saw in Mosiah chapter 25, when he came to the land of Zarahemla and assumed that role among all the Nephites more broadly. Well, his son, Alma, has that same role, and now he is also uh, being made to be the chief judge. So this is really a fascinating turn of events, and we've been focusing on Mosiah's character here, but it's clear that Alma, uh, the younger, is also a man of incredible character and, and will have lots of opportunity as the record goes on and as we move into the book that is named after him, uh, to see how this is true, and as we move into Alma chapter 25, or excuse me, 45, we'll see that he leaves in a manner that makes us wonder if he is translated. 
Uh, so as we look at this democratic process for how Alma was installed and the other chief judges were installed, uh, we have this piece of commentary that was culled uh, by uh, Thomas Arvaletta in his Book of Mormon Study Guide. And this is an, an article called Book of Mormon in the American Revolution by Richard Bushman. He wrote, Once elected, Alma never again submitted himself to the people. After being proclaimed chief judge by the voice of the people, Alma enjoyed life tenure. When he chose to resign because of internal difficulties, he selected his own successor. And we'll see that happening as we get into Alma chapter 4. Alma will step down and uh, only assume the role as, as, as the chief priest or as the high priest at that point, and then the chief judgeship will be given to someone else. Now Bushman continues, That seems to have been the beginning of a dynasty. In the next succession, the judgeship passed to the chief judge's son, and thence by right to the successive sons of the judges. Although democratic elements were there, the judges were confirmed by the voice of the people. The reign of the judges, as the Book of Mormon calls the period, was a far cry from the Republican government Joseph Smith knew. When judges were instituted, Mosiah provided that a greater judge could remove lesser judges, and a number of lesser judges try venal higher judges, but the book records no instance of impeachment. It was apparently not a routine working principle. All other limitations on government are missing. There was no written constitution defining rulers' powers. Now, personally, I I might take issue with Bushman here, which is a a risky thing to do, of course. It's probably a lack of my own understanding, but uh, I, I would like to point out here uh, where he says there was no written constitution, that this, again, is a segment of Mosiah's writings that we are given in chapter 29, but it's clear uh, from what Mormon says that a great deal more was given to the people. So all of this may have been elucidated upon more than what Bushman is indicating here. Uh, as he as he continues, he says, The people could not remove the chief judge at the polls, for he stood for election only once. There were not three branches of government to check one another, for a single office encompassed all government powers. The chief judge was judge, executive, and legislator rolled into one, just as the earlier kings had been. In wartime he raised men, armed men, and collected provisions. He was called interchangeably chief judge and governor. And uh, Bushman gives several examples of that in Alma, uh, chapter 2, chapter 50, chapter 60. He was also a lawmaker. There is no ordinary legislature in the Book of Mormon. The only representation was in the choice of judges, not in the selection of legislators. In the early part of the Book of Mormon, the law was presented as traditional, handed down from the fathers as given them by the hand of the Lord, and acknowledged by this people to make it binding. But later, the chief judge assumed the power of proclaiming or at least elaborating laws. Alma gave Nephihah the power to enact laws according to the laws which had been given. And that's in Alma chapter 4 when that transfer takes place. Any major constitutional changes, such as a return to formal kingship, so far as the record speaks, was the prerogative of the chief judge. Now returning to the text, as we're considering Alma for a moment and how it is that he is playing both roles, it says in verse 43, And now it came to pass that Alma did walk in the ways of the Lord, and he did keep his commandments, and he did judge righteous judgments, and there was continual peace through the land. And thus commenced the reign of the judges throughout all the land of Zarahemla, among all the people who were called the Nephites, and Alma was the first and chief judge." So with this very uh, kind of simple language, as we go from verse 43 to 44, we can see 
that it is an entirely new era. And at the beginning of this chapter, uh, when we read Ogden and Skinner's, Skinner's commentary, where they talked about the reckoning of time being connected with the time that Lehi left Jerusalem, then the next uh, the kind of point of reckoning is right here in verse 44, because this is where the reign of the judges commenced then. Uh, this is from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. The change in the government instituted through King Mosiah was so significant uh, from then until the birth of Christ, the Nephites recorded their time in relation to the beginning of the reign of the judges. Previously, the Nephites kept track of time from the year Lehi left Jerusalem. McConkie and Millet will essentially say the same thing, but in a slightly different way. After Lehi left Jerusalem, time was reckoned according to the date of his departure. Uh, For example, 50 years after Lehi left Jerusalem. With the establishment of the system of the judges, we encounter a new reckoning of time among the Nephites. The first year of the reign of the judges, the 50th year of the reign of the judges, and so on. This system would be in effect until the sign of the birth of Christ would be given when they would begin reckoning their time from that point. Now the final three verses chronicle the passing of the great Alma and Mosiah. So verse 45, And now it came to pass that his father died. So that means the father of Alma the younger died. Uh, Alma the elder, this great priest that uh, we are introduced to in the court of King Noah, has now died, being eighty and two years old, having lived to fulfill the commandments of God. And there's so much that we've learned from this Alma, the elder. Uh, What an incredible scriptural character. And so now we're witnessing his passing in the beginning, not only of a new governmental era, but new characters in the Book of Mormon that will carry us uh, through uh, much of the remainder of the Book of Alma. Verse 46, And it came to pass that Mosiah died also in the thirty and third year of his reign, being sixty and three years old, making in the whole five hundred and nine years from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. Uh, just We can just pause for a moment here and see that Alma is almost 20 years older than Mosiah. And having died at 82 years old, he was rich with experience. So there's a lot more that we could say about that and, and to think about that. And we've, we've had that opportunity uh, in the commentary in some previous chapters, so I'll, I, I won't expand on it here. But uh, there, there, there are implications there when we think about the timing of Zenith's departure, and uh, of the reign of Noah, and so on and so forth. Well, this is our last time marker from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem, right here in verse 46, and it's 509 years from that time. So we know that we're getting very close here to the meridian of time, because it was uh, roughly at 600 BC that Lehi left Jerusalem, or something more like 586 when Jerusalem was was finally sacked and, and Babylonian Uh, The Babylonian captivity took place and the temple was destroyed. Now verse 47, the final verse, And thus ended the reign of the kings over the people of Nephi, and thus ended the days of Alma, who was the founder of the church. So all very factual language from Mormon as he abridges this and delivers it to us. And and over the top of that, we can add this, this layer of significance as we see that we're truly coming to the end of an era as, uh, as we finish the book of Mosiah and Mosiah chapter 29, and as we now prepare to move into the largest book of the Book of Mormon, the book of Alma. So this brings us to the end of Mosiah chapter 29.
Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.